It's good for Becky and I to be back with you. We missed you during our travels to celebrate our son's wedding and to move my parents into uh, assisted living, but um, you were always close to our hearts, and thank you for praying for us. I want to thank Preston and Trevor and Ian for preaching so boldly and, and so well. That's always the danger for a pastor is when you have other people preach, they go, why don't you just stay a little longer? So uh, thank you guys for handling the word well. Um, before our trip, we were studying in the book of Philippians and uh, the series we've entitled Choosing Joy. And if you don't get anything else out of, uh, out of the study, I want you to, to grab a hold of this. Whenever you see the word rejoice, which is a theme that is all the way through this letter to the church at Philippi, you need to translate that in your mind, choose joy, because that's what it means. To rejoice means that I choose to purposely look past the circumstances I am experiencing and to focus on the God who is greater than my struggle and to take encouragement in who he is and the fact that he has called me his own. That's where joy comes from. It doesn't come from the circumstances going smoothly or even changing. Joy comes from a very different source, from God himself. Now, here in this passage, as we begin to, to, to look a little at um, Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 16, we're going to look at it this week and next week. It is perhaps, for me personally, one of the most meaningful passages of Scripture is one that I still wrestle with trying to understand. Not intellectually. I understand what is being said, but I wrestle to live it. And perhaps you do as well. And what I want to encourage you to do is to spend some time over the next several days, several weeks, and meditate on these verses. And say, ask the Lord to help you make this your own prayer. Because what Paul says is, he says, I want to know Christ. Now, if we, if we look at that on the surface level, the way oftentimes we do, Paul's a Christian. He knows Jesus Christ. He's an apostle. He's planted churches all over um, almost the known world. He's engaged his life in ministry, and yet the driving desire of his heart and life is to know Christ, not just know who he is. But here's what I think that means, because this has been, this is actually my life verse, and it's, it's one that I've, that's why I've wrestled with it so much. Here's what I think he means when he says, I want to know Christ. What he's saying is, I want to live out my union with Christ, I want to live out that for which Jesus Christ chose me and called me his own. I want to live in union with the risen Savior. That's what this passage is all about. And that should be the prayer of our heart and life. Because here's what happens. When that becomes a reality, more and more, we will have abundant joy. Now here's the great thing to keep in, keep in mind about God. When Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection, he is talking about an infinite 
God. You see, there is always more of God to know. There's always more of God to experience. And so if we ever reach the point where in our hearts and our minds, we start to say, I know that, we're in trouble. Because there is more of God for you to know and experience than we could ever imagine. So let's start with this question. Who is God to you. When you think about your understanding of God and your relationship with him, how would you describe it? Is he the sovereign God, the holy creator? Is he a righteous and all-powerful God, but someone who is somewhat removed? You, you know they exist, but you have a hard time believing that God is really interested in you. Or is he the forgiving savior, Jesus Christ, a good, merciful God that has demonstrated his love through the sacrifice that he made in going to the cross for you and I. A God who loves you, but perhaps deep down you may feel loves others a bit more because they're more deserving. Perhaps you would describe God as the loving father. He's interested in caring for and providing for you. You've learned to begin to enjoy his presence. His, um, he disciplines you like a father at times, but you've come to realize that that is for our own good. That when he calls us to obedience, it's, it is him calling us to greater intimacy so that he can fill us with more of himself and more of his joy. Is God an intimate friend to you? Someone who deeply is interested in you and you are deeply interested in him. Someone who you've come to realize is with you right here, right now, no matter what you face. See, God is all of those things and more. But who is he to you personally? Several years ago, I went through a season in, in life and in ministry where we had so many deaths in a concentrated period of time, it was very weighty. And, and I lost one of my best friends during that time. I lost my brother during that time. And um, in ministering to a lot of grieving families, I began to realize something that actually was beautiful that came out of the grief. As I would watch brothers and sisters grieving for their parents or grieving for a sibling, um, I began to realize that even though people have a similar relationship, for instance, if you have a family where there's, there's three daughters and the mother passes away, even though each one of them are daughters, they each had a very unique relationship with their mom. And, and it was evident in the grieving process because they would all grieve differently. And they needed to give one another the grace to experience that pain and that loss individually because they had a unique relationship with their mom. I came to realize that's true of God as well. 
And when we begin to grasp the fact that you have a unique relationship with him as, as his child that is different than anyone else's, even though it is shared because we are children of God, we've been adopted by faith in Jesus Christ, he loves you individually. And there's not a comparison in the love. And that's why, as, as I've been meditating on this passage, the thing that just so jumps out at me is in verse 12. Paul's talking about his goal. This is his life pursuit, is to know Christ, to live out this union he's been given with the risen Lord. He wants to experience it more and more. And, and this is what he says. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Now, your translation may say, to take hold of that for which God took hold of me. And that's a good translation, but here in the ESV, it's better because it's more personal. It's more powerful because look what he says. He says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Isn't that cool? In fact, I think you just need to let that sink into your heart a bit. Christ Jesus has made me his own. Would you say that with me? Christ Jesus has made me his own. Isn't that cool? Now, if that's true, then I should be the pursuit of my life, should be the desire to grab a hold of that and to make him my own. Not just salvation. See, here's the challenge that we have as believers we often get stuck in our spiritual relationship at salvation. And we begin to enter into a relationship with God and we begin to, to do some of the things that Christians do. We begin to, to go to church and we find a place to serve and all those are, are, are good things. But we don't grow in knowing God intimately, in pursuing, making Him our own. And this is really dangerous because I'm going to, there's this thing that's been stirring in my heart and my mind that I've been trying to figure out how, how, to, how to communicate it. And why it's scary is because it's not done yet. So you're going to get a half-baked illustration, okay? So just hold on to it. And I pray between what I say and the Holy Spirit um, points into your ears, it will make sense. Because I'm not sure it makes sense to me yet. Here's this incredible dynamic that we see in the scripture. Grace says, that the gospel of Jesus is saying, come to me and live. It's beautiful. The God of the universe stepped into uh, a world broken by sin. He stepped into your experience and my experience, and he says, come to me and I will give you life. But then, as we come to him, as he's made us his own, then comes this part of us beginning to make him our own. And what does he say? He says, come and die. Which is it? Come and live or, or, or come and die? It sounds like a, they're contradictory at first glance. But they're not. The first one of grace, it's like a piece of music. It's the melody. If I was to, this would really be scary, if I was to go over to the piano and play the notes of Amazing Grace, first of all, you would discover that I can't play the piano, even though I can actually play that one line with one hand, but I can't play it very well. You would know the melody, 
But unless I add to that melody a rhythm, eventually it will begin to lose its form and its importance, and even the beauty of the melody will begin to fade. You see, the gospel of grace calls us with the melody of Jesus Christ saying, come to me because I have given my life for you. But then it adds a rhythm of discipleship where we begin to make it our own. And he says, come and die so that you may have life in me. And that is the rhythm of discipleship. That when the two come together, it is a beautiful, beautiful song. That's what he calls us to. And here in this passage, Paul is telling us that the greatest joy in all of the universe is knowing him. In fact, it is greater than anything I've accomplished. In the first seven verses of Colossians chapter 3, I'm not going to take the time to read it right now, but I encourage you to read it at home. Um, As Tom mentioned, Paul tells us about his life experience. He gives us his resume, his CV. He's telling us about all the things that he's accomplished. He's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's a Pharisee. He, uh, concerning zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. He's trained in the law. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He's got all these accomplishments. And it's like he's writing out his resume to say, this is what I've done. And what we would tend to do is we would tend to interpret that this is who I am. Because that's what we do. But Paul makes the distinction. He says, yes, this is what I've done, but guess what? That CV is written on flash paper, and what happens is the moment I step into eternity, I realize it meant nothing. It's nothing compared to this incredible treasure of knowing Christ Jesus intimately and being united with him and living out his life, his resurrection. And because that call is so strong in his heart, he says, I can count everything else as loss. Now, think about it. Some of you are, your occupation is ministry. It's missions. And you're driven by this desire, good desire, to accomplish things for Christ, to serve him. But Paul doesn't say, I want to plant more churches. He doesn't say, I want to reach more people. He doesn't say, I want to see more miracles. All those things are good and incredibly important, but they have to be in the right priority. He says, what I want to live for is knowing Christ. Because when I know him, His life flows through me and all of his work gets accomplished. It's the same thing that Jesus says in John chapter 15 when he says, abide in me for apart from me you can do nothing. That's what he's calling us to. It's an intimacy with him that fills us with his life. So the greatest joy is knowing Christ. Let's read it again and we'll just draw a few points out of this. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. 
Now, when you see that, understand he's already saved. This has nothing to do with a person first trusting Christ. It is about his deepening and growing relationship. It's about living in union with him. And, and what's the background is, this is an infinite God. So there's always more of Christ to gain. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. This is why he says, my accomplishments of the past, especially before Christ, that was me trying to be right with God and trying to look good, but I never knew him. Rather than a righteousness that comes from that, I want one which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now again, that attain the resurrection, he's not talking about somehow earning his right to be risen from the dead. It is, an, it is something active now. This is talking about his relationship with Christ. He wants to attain the resurrected Lord living in him and through him, a resurrected life now. A transformation by being united with Christ. All of this, that's what it's about. He speaks of knowing him now. He wants to experience Christ in the midst of life's sufferings. When he speaks of attaining the resurrection from the dead, he is speaking of a spiritual resurrection in him right now. It's the attainment of a kind of life so filled with Jesus that those who do not know him will see him reflected and they'll see a glimpse of eternity. That's what he's calling us to. He wants to know Christ more and more. Now, this knowledge of Christ, I believe, is a threefold knowledge that we see here in these verses. First of all, there is a pleasure to know Christ. A pleasure. And this is the beginning point. Maybe you're here today and you've trusted Christ, or, or maybe you're still wrestling with that question, whether or not you want to give your life over to Him. But you know about God, but you wouldn't necessarily say, He's really my pleasure. He's my delight. And yet, this is the pursuit that we see all through the Scripture. Moses cried out to God and said, show me your glory. His words echo what Paul would say centuries later. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. It's the same pursuit. David, through the Psalms, gives us the same thing. He, he says, my heart pants for you as a deer pants for the water. There's a thirst and a desire to know God in an intimate way that fills up all that we are. It's a pleasure. And it's easy also sometimes for, for those who have been believers for a while, you can get so caught up in serving that you can miss the one that you serve. You can get so busy doing things for God that it robs you of being able to enjoy God for who He is. And you know what we need to do? 
because I have been guilty of that more times than I can count. We need to repent and turn around and say, Lord, I've been doing so many things for you. I've missed the delight of just being with you. And so right now, I want to stop and turn around and put down all the stuff that needs to be done and just be with you. You see, we can be like the Pharisees. Jesus said this to them in John chapter 5, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. We can be all caught up in Bible study and doing all kinds of things and still miss the Savior and miss His presence. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Charles Spurgeon, in in one of his great works, paints a picture of the temple. And he begins to describe the temple as being a way to come closer and closer to God. You have the outer courts there where the nations would gather, where the sacrifices would happen, the altar would be out there in the court. And, and he used that as a, as a description of sometimes we get stuck in the outer court and we don't enter into the holy place and into the holy of holies of intimacy with God. And he describes it this way. He says, there are those who are content to know Christ's historic life. These know the life of Christ, but not Christ their life. There are others who know and prize doctrine, but they do not know the one who authored it. There are those who follow his example, which is good to a point, but it does not go far enough. His example will be better understood when we walk united with Him. There are those who are perfectly at ease with knowing Christ's sacrifice, the blessed atonement. But they should not forget that He was the sacrifice and that He is greater than that moment. You see, we can get so caught up on focusing on Jesus on the cross, we forget the empty tomb that he came to give us a resurrected life right now if we want to know him. There are those who look for his coming but forget his presence. I've been guilty of that one often. When the world looks like it's falling apart, we pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, and we forget he's already here. There are those who are satisfied with hearing or reading about Christ. Paul did not say, I've heard of him whom I believe, but I know him. You see, this is what we're called to, is to be intimate with him and united with him. This is what I believe ultimately is meant in Romans 8, 29. When he says, for those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
Now, oftentimes, folks can get, a, they put like a, a detour sign whenever they hear the word predestined. Don't do that. Read the scripture and remember what he says we're predestined to. We're predestined to be conformed to his image, to be like him, to be united with him. Now, we can deal with the other aspects of the, of the doctrine in the right setting as we um, digest the scriptures, but remember what he's called us to is that union with him, to become so like him that others begin to see the reflection of Christ in us and we sense his presence. That's what he's calling us to. When he says, I want to know him, he's saying, I want to live out that connection, that conformity. And for a place to begin, it's like you begin any relationship. If you want to know God more, spend time getting to know him, what he's revealed about himself. Begin by praying and asking the Lord, would you show me more of who you are? Not just the facts and the figures of, that are there in the scripture, but to see your heart. And in your, your sermon notes, most of the notes today, don't, you're, some of you are getting really worried that I was going to go super long. Don't worry, I'm not covering 90% of what's in your, in your notes. Those are for you to take home with just some different passages about Jesus to get to know him more. Don't study him from an analytical standpoint. Ask him to show you who he is so that you can spend time with him and enjoy him and so that he can become the pleasure of your heart. And here's ultimately what we need to do is to simply pray, Lord, would you make my desire you? I want to know you for all that you are. I don't want to just be religious. I don't want to have just a get out of hell free card because I've, I've prayed a prayer or I was baptized. I want to know you. And it begins by making God our pleasure. This is why the, the Puritans and the Reformers said that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Secondly, though, this passage of Scripture tells us that it's not just knowing Christ, but there is a power that comes. He says, I want to know Christ and know the power of His resurrection. The same power that brought Jesus out of the grave is there to give us life that is transformed and conformed to His likeness. The secret to overcoming sin and habits and disobedience in our life is the resurrection, is to remember that Christ has called you and I his own. Therefore, he's calling us to take hold of what he has done. And he calls us into obedience, not because he's trying to put us under his thumb, but because he wants you to experience his life and his presence. He wants you to have more of him. And when you simply want him to bless your plans, you're not going to get more of him. You're going to get more of you. And the more of you will never satisfy. The enemy is out there speaking into our hearts and minds and saying, what, getting us to ask the question, what is wrong with X, whatever it is, and get us to justify things that deep in our heart, the Holy Spirit is telling us, this is not God's way. But if he can deceive us into asking that question, what is wrong with it? It keeps us from saying, what will bring pleasure to God because he is my pleasure? You see, it's totally different. 
when I begin to seek that kind of power. Because when I seek him and seek to be united with him, it will transform my heart and my life and my relationships, my work, everything about me. There is a power that is transformational in knowing Christ. But thirdly, there is pain. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Does anybody pray that every day? (laughs) I, I confess There probably have been moments when I've prayed that, but I don't pray it very consistently. Lord, I want to know the fellowship of your sufferings, of sharing in your sufferings. We don't like suffering, but there is an intimacy that comes in pain that is deeper than anything else. You recognize this when you have gone through a great tragedy or a great struggle together or a great grief. Jesus is saying, I want to share this with you because this is a huge part of who I am. It's, it, it's, I'm not just sharing you what I've done. I'm sharing with you my heart. That's this fellowship. Paul said earlier in the book, in chapter 1, verse 29, it has been granted to you, and literally it means graced, graced to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Suffering for Christ then is a divine gift. It is a sign of sacred intimacy with Christ. Karl Barth in wrestling with this said, the grace of being permitted to believe in Christ is surpassed by the grace of being permitted to suffer for him of being permitted to walk the way of Christ and with Christ himself into perfection of fellowship with him. The suffering that comes to a Christian as a Christ follower is not a sign of God's neglect, but rather proof that grace is at work in our lives. There is a sacred intimacy with the Savior. There is a breathtaking beauty that is here. A number of years ago, I was in the middle of a war that was targeted towards a group of believers in Indonesia. And it was a defining moment in my life. Because there on that beautiful island, looked like paradise, some of the worst of inhumanity was occurring. And day after day, people were being killed for their faith in Christ Jesus. Every church on the island had been burned or bombed. Every single one of them. And when I met with some of the believers, especially some of the pastors, and, and I asked them, what, what is God doing in the midst of this? Their answers, though they were varied to a certain degree, had some parallel themes. Number one they would say he is calling us to repentance because we had forgotten that this world is not our home. Secondly, they said he is calling us closer to himself to let go of the things of this world so that we may cling with empty hands to the one who spread out his arms on a cross for us. 
And thirdly, they said he is calling us to show our persecutors Jesus' love and to pray for them, to share in his suffering so that they may know the Savior. These believers knew Jesus in a way that I, I could only imagine. They had an intimacy with him and a love for him that was bigger than my own. And I, I think I've shared this story with you before, but I want to share it again. One of the most beautiful and indescribable sounds I've ever heard was there on that island, every night the shells would begin to fall. Mortars would be fired from artillery. And whenever the shells began, there was a little group of believers who began to play hymns. And in between the explosions, you could hear the lines of the hymns echoing across the city. And in the moments when it was quiet, you could hear voices singing in Ambonese to those songs, to those hymns. And then another rocket would go. Another shell would explode. But they were doing it to remind themselves that the resurrected Lord was with them now. Now the end of the story, at least for me, is several years later, I got to be on a plane with many of the persecutors from this same group, flying into a different part of Indonesia after the tsunami, where a wave of faithful believers in Jesus Christ were coming and bringing medical care and the hope of the gospel. God answered the prayer of those faithful believers on that island and revealed himself to the persecutors, just like he did to Paul. You see, Paul remembered all that he had done. He said, but you know what? That moment on the road to Damascus when I encountered the real God for who he is, that was worth everything. And even if my life from this moment on is nothing but challenge and difficulty, I have obtained a treasure that is far greater than anything else I could ever imagine. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. I want to become like him, conform to his image. That is my desire. Church, we're going to dig into this a little bit more um, next week, but I, I was just trying to set the tone so that you will begin to, to pray, God, can I really know you that way? Can I know an infinite God this way? For some of you, that seems strange. But know this, the God of the universe has called you his own. He stepped into our world, into our brokenness, and gave himself as a sacrifice so that you could know him. Don't you want to get to know him? Today, would you simply say, Jesus, I want to know you. I want to know if you're real. If you're real, help me to understand. I'm going to pursue you in your word. 
I'm going to look and see what it says. And then I, I pray that you'll help me to grab a hold of, of what this is saying and to experience it. Today, I'm going to take a step to trust you. I may not know what it all means yet, but I'm going to move closer to you. Because if you're real, I want you. For others, maybe you've been a believer for a long time, but you've become weary and well-doing. The call of the gospel is simply to remember he's taken hold of you. He invites you to make him your pleasure, your pursuit, your desire. To allow all of the duties and the, the weight to be set aside and say, God, I just want to know you. Dear Heavenly Father, it's impossible for our minds to fathom all that you are because you are infinite. But Lord, we want to know you. Lord, and we want to make you known. Lord, making you known comes from our intimacy with you first and foremost. So Lord, though it is our desire to see your name be proclaimed in this city, in this country, and across the world, Lord, call us first to abide in you, to enjoy you, to make you the deepest desire and goal of our heart and life. Lord, you are all around us. You are with us every moment. So would you help us to see you for who you are and to live out our union through faith in you with the resurrected Lord. You are all around us. Help us to live like it's true and enjoy you for who you are. In Jesus' name.